for all the news and expert opinion. Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins on 630 Chat. The Broncos reply with a field goal. So in the first quarter, Seahawks leading Denver 7-3. We will keep you updated on that one. The uh, Oilers with another of the informal skates today at Rogers Place. The rookies are coming to town for the medicals and physicals on uh, Wednesday. The Young Stars Tournament in Penticton runs Friday through Monday. We got an Elks game for you on 6.30. Chet on Friday night. Elks at Rough Riders, 6 o'clock for the countdown to kickoff game at 7.30. We have an Oilers preseason game in less than two weeks. Sunday the 25th, they're going to dive into the uh, exhibition schedule with five games in seven nights to get it going. We will uh, get to more of your replies as we move along tonight as uh, Kellen's been compiling some of your uh, text messages with Russell Wilson playing against Seattle as a member of the Denver Broncos. Uh, which oiler who left, whether it was a trade, free agency, or whatever, was it most painful for you to see in another uniform? We got an interesting, a few interesting replies. One gentleman said seeing Grant Fuhr as a flame, which was right at the end of Grant's career. But yeah, that would have been weird. Uh, I'll bring Jack Michaels uh, on. Jack, I'll ask you, uh, Jack Michaels checking in tonight. I'll ask you sort of a, a wider ranging question rather than just an Oilers centric one. Uh, which athlete perhaps from, from any sport or maybe someone you cheered for growing up in Western Pennsylvania, was it m- most either difficult, painful, or just unusual for you to see in a, in a different Jersey than the one you associated him with? Well, the biggest thing for me was probably Bernie Kosar winning a Super Bowl as a backup to Troy Aikman in Dallas after Bill Belichick cut him with the Browns in first place in 1993. I mean, that, that kind of typified the Bill Belichick era in Cleveland. I mean, there's this revisionist history how the Browns could have gotten rid of the guy, but he, he had he had worn out his welcome by the time Cleveland let him go. I I can't say that, you know, I thought, oh, boy, we're making a huge mistake here letting Bill Belichick go. I have to say this, though. I, I never, and I know his jersey is retired there. I mean, for me, Gretzky was always an oiler, more so like – for me, I don't know if this will make sense, but I felt like I never got used to seeing Gretzky in L.A. or any other jersey. But for some reason, Messier in New York made a lot of sense. It just seemed norm, like normalized. I don't know whether Edmontonians would agree with that because, of course, Mark grew up here as well. But that that for me was the big difference of all the Oilers that went elsewhere I still was kind of flummoxed by the idea of, of Wayne Gretzky playing anywhere else. That was that was a bit bizarre for me uh, growing up, whereas Messier as a Ranger almost seemed to fit, strangely. Uh, but, yeah, Kosar as a Cowboy, I didn't enjoy that at all. I, that's an interesting one you brought up, and that's a good point, too, about uh, Belichick. His uh, tenure with the Cleveland Browns uh, not quite remembered as fondly. Per, per, perhaps his tenure with the Browns, though, remembered more fondly than his tenure with the New York Jets, which is a whole other story. Yeah, it, it, uh, the tenure with the Jets was about an hour. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and and actually, you know, that, that was one of the rare instances where Bill Belichick showed a sense of humor when he – when he said uh, the page, uh, before his Patriots press conference, I hope this one goes better than the last press conference I called. So, uh, you know, uh, I, I always, I mean, you know, old school people would tell you that, you know, 
seeing Johnny Unitas and Deacon Jones and San Diego Chargers uniforms was super weird, and I'm and I'm sure that was. Uh, growing up a Pirate fan, I did not, you know, I, I did not necessarily appreciate Dave Parker playing in Cincinnati, although he kind of bounced around and, and had some real good years in Oakland, as you may recall, because uh, I, I grew up a big, you know, Pirate guy, and, and, and Dave Parker was, was at briefly a Blue Jay in 91. I, you know what? I didn't even remember that. And and secondly, I, what what fewer people will remember is for about a three year stretch, Dave Parker was the best player in the National League. I mean, he's he was probably the best player in baseball. Uh, and you know, it was before he got you know re- relatively rotund. But uh, in any event, um, <laughs> the double R relatively yeah, rotund. <laughs> yeah, relatively rotund. But yeah, I mean, it's it's especially. I would think this is a question that really applies, you know, to Oiler fans because ultimately. You know, they saw pretty much all of their heroes, uh, you know, playing in other sweaters. Whereas, you know, I grew up on the tail end where you could theoretically see. I mean, for instance, a lot of the Steelers, uh, you know, finished, you know, in in Pittsburgh. I I think a lot of people would forget Franco Harris was briefly a Seahawk. Uh, That that one. Uh, might jump out for those who were uh, who are diehard Steeler fans for sure. Yeah, uh, it's interesting to see uh, Wilson getting some cheers and, and a lot of boos here as the Seahawks are hosting the Broncos, still 7-3 for Seattle. Oilers play-by-play voice Jack Michaels checking in tonight on Inside Sports. Hey, we, we got so much to talk about here. I got to ask you about the tennis because you're a much more astute tennis observer than I am. I, I told the story on the show last week. I guess it would have been Wednesday night. I'm winding down. Uh, you know, I, I go to bed usually between midnight and, and one, given my hours more towards later in the day. And I thought, oh, I'll watch TV for 15 or 20 minutes. I wound up watching for a little over an hour because uh, Alcaraz was playing center in the right. long, in the second longest match and the latest ever match at the U.S. Open. And then Alcaraz, uh, Alcaraz at the age of 19 wins the tournament and takes over the number one ranking in the world. Yeah, that that match, you know, for for many Edmontonians, I'm sure it was their first look, and they probably never heard of either guy, unless you were a hardcore tennis fan. Uh, you know, it, it's outside of the big three. This was the first tournament that I felt really rose to a level approaching that of the big three in terms of, of caliber of play. I mean, there were some great matches, and Carlos Alcaraz, and and I've been guilty on this program. I. I know I anointed Bianca Andrescu, and this is the thing about tennis, and for that matter, any sport. But I mean, injuries can really derail a career, and and you know I really felt Bianca, and I still feel that she has the talent. I think I said on this show to win, you know, six, seven, eight majors. I mean, I and I still believe that, but she has really had a rough go of it the last three years. And this guy Alcaraz, I'd say the same thing because. He hits the ball as well off the ground as Rafael Nadal did at this age, but he's got a better serve and a better net game. And if he stays healthy, this guy should uh, challenge the all-time greats. But that's what makes the all-time greats, and I want to I clarify that. That's what makes these guys special. And for that matter, a Serena Williams is, you know, you got to be durable, and you got you to gotta stay healthy, and you got to persevere through things like, you know, COVID-19 and, and somehow find a way to be relevant year upon year, decade upon decade in the case of, of Nadal, Federer, and Djokovic, who 
dominated the game the last 15 years. I mean, that's tough to do. And, uh, you know, they've done it. I mean, we, we didn't see three Tiger Woods. We saw one. In tennis, we've seen three. And that's, what, that's what's remarkable. We've seen three all at the same time. And, you know, you, you don't get that often in, in any sport. Uh, and, and so that's, I think, what makes uh, Alcaraz so tantalizing is he certainly would seem to have the game to do it. But there are so many factors in an individual sport like tennis that dictate how far you get. And staying healthy, I think, remains the number one type of ingredient uh, when it comes to tennis because so many uh, guys and gals have had their careers completely derailed by injury. Yeah, I like how you put that. We saw one Tiger Woods in golf, but we saw three in tennis at the same time. That's a that's a pretty cool way to look at it, which uh, transitions to the Edmonton Oilers. And uh, most teams would be lucky to have uh, one Hart Trophy winner on the roster. The Oilers have two. McDavid's won a couple. Dreisaitl won it three years ago. Uh, and that's where the Oilers are at. And Dreisaitl came out and spoke to the media on Friday. Connor McDavid spoke today. Jack, look, I I know when we get into uh, critical times of the season and into the playoffs, and and I know when a team, whether it's the Oilers or whoever, uh, has a slump, it's usually because of their play in the defensive end. I I get that. I also look at the trends in the NHL, 3.14 goals per game per team, the uh, highest since it was 3.08 in 05-06. It was 3.14 way back in 95-96. I think the days of the 3-2 league are gone. I I think there might be some nights where a team allows three or even four and still wins, and you might say, you know what, they actually checked pretty well, and the goalie actually played a good game. And uh, with the players on the roster, the, the Oilers are perfectly suited to play that to play that type of game. I mean, the players who had good offensive numbers were right around their career averages in terms of shooting percentage. And Nugent Hopkins uh, was four points below his career shooting percentage last year at only seven point one percent. Well, I, I'm going to boil down what you said there, and there was quite a lot of, of things mashed into that preamble. I think, Reed, what, what I'd go back to is what you asked me on the program about a month ago is, you know, will the Oilers score 300 goals? I think you mentioned four teams scored 300 last season. And I told you, and I, I'll stick to that, I think conservatively speaking, double that are going to score 300 this year. And, and the Oilers will be one of those teams. I think you might see eight teams score. I agree with you, and, and you heard me on this program about a month ago say, you know, we are entering an era not only of, you know, offensive proclivity where, again, you're starting to see the power play numbers skyrocket. I mean, you know, a good power play in this league used to be 20%. Off the top of my head, Reed, I would guess that 20% last year in the league would rank no better than 14th or 15th. And that's just off the top of my head, but I'm just saying, like, we're getting into power plays where to have an above-average power play, you're clicking at 22 23%. Uh, and, and that, you know, you used to think of, like, 17 18% as a more than adequate power play, and that's below average now. And then you talk about, you know, goaltending. I think we're in a bit of a lull here. I, I, I think, you know, in terms of the number of, what you'd say would be terrific goaltenders in the league has dropped to single digits for sure. 
and I'm not sure you're down to around five or six in terms of elite goaltenders. Uh, and and that, there used to be 10 or 11. Uh, and, and, and that's changed in the last 10 years. So I think there's a combination of factors in effect. Uh, you know, your, your, your power plays up, your goaltending's down, your scoring is up, your depth of scoring is up. You know, you got... You got one line in Calgary where three guys scored 40 goals uh, and, and two of them had over 100 points. And I know that line's been broken up, but you start seeing guys rip off, you know, 105, 110-point seasons and they're struggling to get in the top five in the National Hockey League. And that's what we've seen the last three or four years, and I think it's going to continue. I'd concur with what you're saying, and I think you're going to have to score to have success in this league. And I think if you can lock it down defensively and get average goaltending, you can go far. And the Oilers were proof positive of that last year. Uh, they, you know, they never had elite goaltending at, at, at any real stretch other than a, a couple games here and there. And they rolled through the season fairly well once Jay Woodcroft took over. And I expect the same this year. I, I don't necessarily think Edmonton is going to be a top five or top ten defensive club, but I don't think it's going to matter because I think on many nights they'll outscore their mistakes just as they did a year ago. There were 19 teams that had a power play of 20% or better. The Pittsburgh Penguins were 19th at 202 Ottawa was just below at 19.3. So, and I'd yeah, be curious, uh, Reed, if you went back to 2000, let's say 12 or something, throw a dart. Well, let's just yeah. let's just pick a random year. You want me to pick 12, 13, or 11, 12? No, 11, 12, because 12, 13 was a shortened season. So I, I, I'm right, just okay. I'm just wondering so then, what 20% would have ranked in 11, 12. Fourth. There you go. So I mean, last year, 20% awesome. would have put you 20th. Yeah, and what in yeah. back in uh, back? Here's the quiz for Jack. We usually have a quiz for Stoffer. In 11-12, do you remember the three teams who had the best power plays? I... I'll give you a hint. You did the play-by-play for one of them. <laughs> oh, the Oilers. Yeah, the Oilers, the Oilers were third a... that year, even though yeah, they, they were pretty uh, yeah. poor, 32-40-10. and 10. They were 20.6%. The Sharks were 21.1%, and the Predators were 26 yeah, and I would not have gotten the I would not have gotten the Predators because, of course, back then under Barry Trotz, they you know they, their offense was kind of a whack-a-mole offense where if they got 17, 18 goals, that was a big year from forward. Uh, you know, I, and and there you go. I mean, that's off the top of my head, Reed. So th- so that ju- what I mean by that is that just goes to show you how evident the trend is. You know where it's it's obvious it's obvious where it's going, and that's why the Oilers, you know, as they continue to round out their depth of scoring, you know, become a team that's that's difficult to contend with, no matter what their goaltending or defense looks like. You know, and and again, if it's adequate, then their offense will carry the day. And you couldn't say that in this league ten years ago, obviously. I mean, you know, there you go. Uh, 2011-12, you got the third best power play, and you're nowhere near playoff contention. That was not, you know, that was not the following year where the Oilers were in a playoff spot with 12 games to go. That was a team that had no chance. And, you know, they had the third best power play in the league. It's it's a different league now. And, you know, back in 11-12, 
you know, again, you think of the goaltenders that were still at or near the top of their games, you know, with Lundqvist and Luongo and Brodeur, I mean, right off the top of my head, those are those are three, you know, obvious kind of, you know, Hall of Fame guys, not to mention Jonathan Quick and, you know, so so it's it's a league that's changed quite a bit. It's an oiler club that I think has some solid depth on defense, especially with the acquisition of Ryan Murray. And it's also a team that has a goaltender looking to prove once and for all that he can carry a club over the course of a full 82-game schedule, that he can stay healthy, that he can be reliable, that he can avoid the wild swings in his game that have marked uh, the Oilers' goaltending the last three or four years, even as they've been you know, playoff teams year in, year out, their, their goaltending has, has vacillated quite a bit during the course of the season. So you've got a lot of things on the table for this year. And, and behind Jack Campbell is, is a guy who's, who's looking to prove once and for all that he is a National Hockey League goaltender and that he's, he's going to be relied upon to play 30 games. And then he's going to use that as a springboard to challenge for more ice time moving forward. And that's Stuart Skinner. So uh, it's, it's not like if you went into this season 10 years ago with the Oilers goaltending and, you know, relatively unproven. And again, Jack Campbell's had some great stretches. But if, again, if you said, well, Jack Campbell's my starter 10 years ago, you might say, well, there's not a big enough sample size to make Edmonton a serious contender. But you look at the way the league is now and you hear less and less about, well, you got to have a number one goaltender. Instead, you hear more and more about, you know, that team has loads of offense and they're going to be tough to deal with. And not just Edmonton. I mean, you're hearing it about Calgary. You're hearing it about Florida. You're hearing it obviously about Colorado. I mean, I don't think that history will reveal that, that Darcy Kemper and Pavel Francouz are two of the league's great goaltenders, but much like Chicago, when they won it the first year, you know, Antti Niemi was just good enough. And I, I don't think going into this season that for most of the Stanley Cup contenders, Edmonton included, that they need a Vesna Trophy caliber season to be a serious cup contender. And that more than anything is indicative of the way the league is right now as compared to a decade ago. Jack, uh, this was an absolute pleasure. I didn't even get to everything we wanted to talk about, which means you're coming on the show again in the near, uh, very near future. I will see you at the golf tournament tomorrow, buddy. I'm looking forward to it. If it were on the 10-point must system, Leopard wins not only a lopsided decision, but a few 10-8 rounds in that, in that matchup with Motley Crue. And I say this as a Motley Crue fan. And I would also say that as a guy who belittled poison – Years and years ago, you know what? They try really hard. They work the crowd, and they have earned my respect over the last three decades. And I'm sure they're, like, quivering with uh, thanks that I would say that. But as a guy who used to deride Poison and its fan base, you know what? They've proven me wrong. That is Jack Michaels on Inside Sports. This is Mike Smith from your Edmonton Oilers, and you're listening to Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins on 630 Chet. All right, that's uh, Mike Smith, likely to be on long-term injured reserve this season. We uh, asked you which former Oiler 
was it most difficult or most painful to see in another team's jersey after he left the Oilers under whatever circumstances and went to an, uh, another team? Kellen, what do you have? Uh, Al texts in with a couple here. He says, well, actually, it wasn't that hard to see Messier in a Rangers jersey, but it really bothered him to see him in a Canucks jersey later on down the line. And he also adds Gretzky in a St. Louis Blues jersey was really weird. Yeah, it wasn't there very long for sure. Mm-hmm, exactly. Uh, D.Y. texts in and says, what about Adam Graves in a Flames jersey? Oh, geez, I don't even remember that. <laughs> Neither did I. How long did he play for the Flames? I, I do not remember Adam Graves playing for the Flames. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Uh, uh, Adam Graves didn't play for the Flames. I think that person is just fantasizing. Okay, what else? Okay, uh, we got one from an unknown texter. He says, hey, read Dwayne Rollison. Broke my heart. He couldn't play out the playoffs in 06 and couldn't bear seeing him in the wrong orange and blue. All right, 780-496-0063. The Elks this week with Morley Scott is coming up between 7.30 and 8. And we'll also introduce you to, in the next half hour of Inside Sports, the stats are incredible. i got to say these again. Colby Herford of the U of A Golden Bears, he's a receiver for the football team. He had four receptions for 202 yards and three touchdowns. We'll tell his story when we get back after the news. 